0: Well, this morning, uh, you probably did not notice, especially if you went through the courtyard, but there may be a few fellowship activities that are planned for today. And Chuck may have actually graduated the fun level for the kids. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, in any case, uh, that's the probably the biggest water slide I've seen outside of a park you pay 50 bucks to get into. So uh, good job, Chuck. Um, but... We're, uh, we've got a special day celebrating the 4th of July today, and it's a, a day of uh, worship and a day of celebration and fellowship. And in that vein, uh, talking to the elders after our elders meeting this week... Uh, The idea was that we would do a little bit of a special message on the subject of fellowship, specifically the fellowship that we celebrate regularly at the Lord's Table. I know it's been a number of years since we actually in detail addressed the subject of the Lord's Supper, but that's what I'd like to talk to you about today uh, in the time that we have to study the Word of God. I want to talk to you about... The meaning of the Lord's Supper and its significance. And We could do a number of different approaches at this. We could talk about it from an historical perspective and from the perspective of the various things that people teach, etc., and then kind of work through it in like a systematic theology approach. But I really just like to ask a few questions and then seek to answer them from some key passages in the Bible and then close uh, out our time in the study of the Word of God today by just helping each of us to either be reminded or to maybe for the first time come to a real understanding of what communion's all about. What is it that we do besides just take a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice and, and drink the two of them, or a little bit of wine uh, and a little wafer depending on where you are? Uh, what is it that the Bible teaches as far as the Lord's Supper, also referred to as communion? We'll start with this question. When did the celebration of the Lord's Supper begin? When did it start? Well, the practice itself actually is first found in Acts chapter 2. That may be a surprise to you, uh, but in Acts chapter 2 is where we see, uh, specifically in verse 42, uh, we see the early church on the day of Pentecost Uh, Coming to saving faith, 3,000 people, they're added to the church. And in Acts 2.41, we're told that those who received the the preaching word of Peter were baptized. There were 3,000 people added to the church that day. And from that point on, it says in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the idea of the breaking of bread here is probably tied directly to a celebration of the Lord's Supper, or what we sometimes refer to as communion. Now, some would say that that's just taking meals together, and that was probably included in it. Uh, And you'll see that later on in verse 46 as as the early behavior of the church is described as day to day, continuing with one mind in a temple that is gathering for corporate worship and instruction and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Notice they're taking their meals together. But it also, again, says breaking bread. And the breaking bread, back up in verse 42, is paired together with being devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship of uh, believers, and to prayer. And so you can see there's a very spiritual focus on those four descriptives. And that's what would lead most, uh, I think, to believe rightly that the breaking of bread in verse 42 as well as verse 46 refers specifically to celebrating communion. And the reason it's called breaking bread in that context is because that's what Jesus did at the Last Supper. He broke bread. After he had broken it, he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll talk about that when we celebrate uh, the Lord's table together here uh, at the end of uh, our uh, Bible time. And... uh, uh, the breaking of bread then was a celebration of communion or, or a celebration of the Lord's Supper. It was a, a a corporate exercise whereby many times in keeping with eating a meal, they remembered what the Lord had done. They celebrated communion. Now, that's when the practice of communion begins. But as far as the instruction itself goes... For that, we have to go back to the gospel. So I want you to buckle your seatbelts and put on your crash helmets. We're going to do a, a number of passages here. And I, I, there's a lot of other places we could go, but I just want to hit the main points. So if you take your Bible, first of all, and go to Matthew chapter 26 with me. And there are two Gospels what we want to look at because they really lay out the details for us. But in, in Matthew 26... We pick up in verse 17, uh, in verses 14 to 16, Judas makes arrangements with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. And then in verse 17, we're told that it's on the first day of unleavened bread, that is the feast of unleavened bread, which is the Passover. I'll show you that in Luke's gospel momentarily. The first day of Uh, unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and and asked him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat what? What's the Bible say? The Passover. So this is the the annual Passover celebration. So they're asking Jesus, where do you want us to prepare for For us, remember, they live in Galilee, they came to Jerusalem for the celebration, the Passover celebration, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the disciples say, as we're approaching the Passover now, where do you want us to prepare for us to eat the Passover? And Jesus said, go into the city to a certain man. Say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did exactly as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Notice how many times the word Passover is used in this context. That's important for our discussion because I want you to note that what Jesus celebrated with his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed was the Passover meal. He ate the Passover together with his disciples. That's going to be significant in our understanding of the celebration of communion because Jesus is going to take elements that are used in that Passover memorial celebration and He is going to borrow from them in order to establish that Lord's Supper celebration that that we do. Um, When we get there, evening comes. Jesus is reclining at the table, verse 20, with the disciples As they're eating, Jesus says, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, etc. And they all say, it's surely not me, etc. And Jesus uh, says... uh, uh, it's going to happen. He identifies Judas in a way that later on the disciples are able to understand. And then in verse 26, we're told that while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Why is it referred to in Acts chapter 2 as the breaking of bread? Because that's that was the first key exercise in the Um, celebration of the Passover that Jesus added meaning to, turned it into a memorial. Take, eat, this is my body. Uh, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, "Uh, Drink from it, all of you. Why? Because this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. And a covenant, I think a lot of times as believers, we get, we get to the place where we use certain terms, biblical terms, I would say even righteousness fits into this category, propitiation fits into this category, and covenant fits into this category. And we think that we know what it means just because we've heard it so many times and used it so many times. But basically, a covenant... Means a promise. Uh, It's a testament, a promise, a covenant. This is the new promise, the new testament, the new covenant, the new commitment that I make, God says, in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, that's where the prescription is given. We refer to the event as the Last Supper. It's the night in which Jesus is betrayed. He's got his disciples round about him. John describes the events of the upper room as beginning with with Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Right? Uh, And then saying, one of you is going to betray me. Revealing who that is by giving him the sop. and uh, And then instituting communion as a memorial. The Lord's Supper as a memorial. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And he takes two of the elements from that Passover celebration and uses them as the means by which he institutes this memorial of the work of redemption that he himself is about to perform as he heads to the cross. Now, if you take your Bibles and turn to Luke 22, I want to show you a couple of of key points that we can pick up from the parallel passage here in Luke. Luke chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1. I I want you to notice that the narrative begins, uh, and keep this in mind, this explains why there are some differences between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. It's because of the target audience. Matthew, you'll remember, just said, it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? That's all he says. And then the disciples say, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? There's no explanation as to how those terms work together. Well, that's because Matthew is writing to Jews and to God-fearers. They would have understood all that, right? They grew up with all of that. When you come to Luke chapter 22, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience And that's why Luke 22 and verse 1 says the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. Notice the added explanation. Why is the added explanation given? Because he's writing to people who are not Jewish and would not have understood that one refers to the seven-day festival and the other refers to the events of that first day, the Passover itself. Okay? But we're still at a Passover. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it gets kicked off with the Passover meal, the Passover memorial celebration. Uh, The chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to put Jesus to death, and all of that stuff goes. Uh, Judas makes an arrangement to betray the Lord. Uh, And then we get down to verse 7, and the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed came. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house uh, that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. So they left and they found everything just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared what? The Passover. Notice again how many times the word Passover occurs here. Why? Because the Last Supper was a celebration of the Passover that Jesus and his disciples partook in. They celebrated the Passover on Thursday night. You say, well, uh, but I read in John, I thought, that the religious leaders were anxious about the crucifixion and having the bodies taken down off the cross because they were preparing to celebrate the Passover themselves on Friday. Plus, doesn't the Bible talk about Jesus being the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb himself who takes away the sins of the world? How do you have two Passover celebrations? This is one of those little um, supposed or apparent contradictions in the Bible that some people want to say, see, the Bible has errors in it. Well, the Bible does not have an error in it, and this is not an error. The, the reason, historically speaking, the reason that there are two celebrations of the Passover, so to speak, is because uh, it's dependent upon whether you live in Jerusalem and are following the Jewish reckoning of when the day changes uh, whether you or the Roman one, which would be either six uh, or new uh, twelve or six, is when the day changes. And so, for the Passover celebration for people from Galilee and people outside of Jerusalem, they would do their sacrificial offering of the lamb celebration of the Passover in on this particular year on Thursday night. And then the Passover for those living in Jerusalem would be on Friday night, and then the Sabbath would be on Saturday, which by the way is exactly why nobody went to the tomb and no work was done until Sunday, the first day of the week. And so the the text completely harmonizes. And the reason and the way the only way that Jesus can both be the Passover lamb and eat the Passover is is because of the way that things had played out historically up to the point of Jesus' ministry. So you have uh, Jesus celebrating the Passover and then being able to be the Passover lamb on Good Friday. Now, uh, the reason I go through all of that is because the significance here is that when Jesus gave instructions to his disciples, and then ultimately to us to celebrate the Passover, he built that upon the foundation of that Passover festival, that Passover celebration. Understanding communion begins with understanding... Like much of the New Testament, understanding much of the New Testament it begins by understanding the Old Testament. So, too, understanding the Lord's Supper or communion begins with understanding the Passover. Now, as we move forward in the text, verse 14, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this what? Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus is celebrating it. He is having a Passover meal with his disciples because I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it. Again, this is why in Acts 2 it's called the breaking of bread, because this is the beginning of what the Lord's Supper celebration is. This is the beginning of the memorial of Jesus Christ. He took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. And here's the key, end of verse 19, what does it say? Do this... To get right with me. Is that what it says? Do this to be forgiven of your sins. Is that what it says? No, it says do this in remembrance of me. What is the communion celebration? It is a memorial that Jesus instituted on the very night in which he was betrayed. And he built it on the foundation of the Passover celebration. Do this in remembrance of me. We call it an ordinance because Jesus gave orders or instructions to his disciples to do this as a practice. You take bread and you break it. And you eat the bread as a memorial, not just like the memorial that is being celebrated now of God delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt, but moving forward just like annually, Israel was instructed to, go, to do a memorial uh, go through a memorial exercise, a meal that included the cup and the bread and the roasting of the lamb and the eating in haste and all of that kind of stuff. Much like that was an annual memorial of God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt, so too, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Borrowing from those elements did Jesus institute the celebration of communion or the Lord's Supper as a remembrance or memorial of what he was about to do for us at the cross. We're told in verse 20 in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new promise in my blood. The new covenant, the old covenant, the new promise, the old promise. The old promise was that God would make a great nation out of his people. The new promise is that he will once and for all take away our sins and make us forever his people. Now, that is, that's where the beginning of the celebration comes from. I want you to take your Bibles with me, though, and turn back to Exodus 12. Because I think this is important to understand as far as the elements themselves go and what Jesus was celebrating with his disciples there in the Passover celebration. We go back to Exodus chapter 12. I'm not going to go through the history of the first 11 chapters. Suffice it to say that Israel as a nation is in bondage in Egypt. And God sends Moses to deliver them. And God does a bunch, pours out a bunch of plagues. He does a bunch of miracles through Moses as plagues, as warnings against Pharaoh and Egypt until finally we get to the very last one and it's going to be the death of the firstborn of everybody in Egypt. But God has been making a distinction between the plagues falling on the Egyptians and the plagues falling not falling on the Hebrews, on the Jews. And so we come to the last one, and these instructions are given. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. So uh, your calendar changes today. This is from now on going to be the first month in your year this month in which I deliver you from bondage in Egypt and bring you out and make you a nation unto myself. This, your calendar now is going to be arranged on the basis of my deliverance of you. That's how important this is. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves. According to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Verse 4, if a house is too small to eat a whole lamb, then you work it out so that you can share. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. Keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So bring it into your house, keep it with you for, uh, for the better part of a week. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel "...is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat." So you slaughter the lamb, sacrifice it, uh, and then you take some of the blood and you smear it on both of the sides of the door and over the top of the door. "...and they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire." And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Later we find that the bitter herbs as a symbol of the bitterness of being in bondage and the unleavened bread, because you're taking nothing from Egypt and you left in haste. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. Whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. You shall not eat it in its... Or excuse me. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded. I mean, it's like your belt on. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Well, what's that a picture of? You eat it like you're ready to go. Why? Because tonight uh, I'm going to come through... And I'm going to slaughter the firstborn of every house that is not marked out by the blood of the Passover lamb. That's why it's called the Passover lamb. Because if you slaughter a lamb and you spread the blood over the doorposts and across the lintel, the top of the doorframe, okay, then I will, the angel of death will pass over that household, and the firstborn in that household I will not take. But every other house, and you can't, and the Egyptians are not going to follow this practice. So the firstborn in every one of their households dies. That's why it's called Passover. You shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste because it is the Lord's Passover. Why? Because I will go through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against, uh, and against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And where I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, here's the key as it relates to the celebration of communion of the Lord's Supper. Verse 14. This day will be a memorial for you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a What? Permanent ordinance. The idea of an ordinance means a command, a rule, a law. This is an annual memorial, God says to Israel, that I am establishing that you will celebrate every year just like this as a memorial of how I delivered you in accordance with my promise. God makes a promise to Abraham that he will make a great nation out of his descendants. God makes that same promise to Isaac and to Jacob, who He renames Israel. Joseph dies in Egypt with the expectation of the fulfillment of that promise. And when God fulfills that promise and delivers them from bondage in Egypt and takes Israel into the promised land and gives them the land that He promised, when He does that, He fulfilled His promise. And the celebration of the Passover lamb and the feast of unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? Because they left in haste and they brought nothing with them from Egypt. They didn't bring any leaven from Egypt, any of the influence of Egypt. Bitter herbs because the, the time uh, spent in bondage and in slavery was bitter. And this was an annual celebration, an annual memorial, an annual remembrance of how God had delivered them from bondage. Well, that is the very celebration that Jesus is, is, is partaking in with his disciples in the upper room on that night in which he is betrayed. He is eating the Passover meal. It is a memorial of God delivering Israel from bondage in Egypt. And he takes part of that, the breaking of bread and that last cup, and he... Turns it into a memorial of what he did for us. That's, that's the beginning of the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So then, what is the celebration of the Lord's Supper? The focus of the Lord's Supper is on a memorial of what Christ did for us, it is a memorial. It is a celebration of what Jesus did for us at the cross. It is a focus on Him and who He is and how He fulfilled His promise to take away our sins forever. You see the practice in the early church. In Acts 2.42, we talked about this before, breaking of bread. Uh, You also see later on, I think it's verse 46, where it talks about they were eating, taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, breaking bread. Almost certainly a regular daily celebration or a regular and frequent celebration, memorializing what Jesus did for us and bringing about our uh, our salvation. If you take your Bible... And uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul gives us some more details here. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23. The Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me etc. I want you to notice how similar the verbiage is here with what both Matthew and Luke said. Key to point out to you here though is that the apostle Paul was not an apostle when Jesus celebrated this that, that first Uh, celebration of the Passover, which he turned into communion or the Lord's Supper, that Paul was not an apostle. Paul was a Pharisee in those days. And yet the apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered also to you. In other words, what he's saying is this is something that Jesus personally taught me. And as you read through Paul's epistles and you read through the account of Uh, in acts of him coming to saving faith, uh, you see that Jesus personally called Paul to be his apostle to the Gentiles, and he personally instructed Paul in preparing him for that work. So when Paul went to Corinth and planted a church there, Paul is saying, I taught you the right way to celebrate communion. I taught you what it is and the right way to do it and how it is an exercise of worship. I received, verse 23, from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this, why, how, And as a remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is... The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. What? In remembrance of me. This is a memorial celebration. This is a memorial service. In fact, when you look at verse 26, I think this is what's most enlightening uh, from the New Testament teaching. As far as really getting a, a proper understanding of the nature of the celebration of communion. He says in verse 26, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you reconcile yourself to God over and over and over again, covering all your past sins. Is that what it says? No. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is a memorial of what Christ did for us in the past, but it's not just looking back. The primary focus is, is looking back and forward to His return. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until He comes. Meaning, you're declaring in your celebration of communion that you are so convinced of His resurrection that you are memorializing His death and looking forward to His return. Uh, Communion is is a celebration. Okay? It is is not a lament. It is not a time of sorrow and sadness. It's like the Passover. It memorializes what God did. And the wrath that God poured out. And how He delivered His people from bondage. But also how He brought them to the promised land. In the case of the Passover, it was an annual reminder that God passed over them, not because they were any better than than the Egyptians, but because they were His people, and they believed Him, they trusted Him, they obeyed Him, they put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, and God passed over and delivered them. Good to His Word. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Promise. And the new promise in Christ's blood is that when He died... He once and for all washed away all of our sins. I, deliver, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the very night He was betrayed, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember how I gave myself up for you so that you could be reconciled to God. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That I shed my blood, that I literally poured out my life in your place so you could be forgiven of all your sins and reconciled to God. I gave up my body, I gave up my life so that you could be reconciled. And he took two items from the Passover celebration and turned them into objects that symbolize tangibly, just like the Passover lamb was a tangible, observable uh, memorial, so too the bread and the cup are tangible, observable memorials of what Jesus did for us. We are not called to be primarily introspective, looking at either ourselves and our sin and our sinfulness when we celebrate communion, nor are we to be overly morbid and consider primarily all the horrors of the cross and crucifixion. Notice, the emphasis is not all looking past. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. See, the, the the memorial celebration of Passover, or excuse me, of the Lord's Supper or of communion is to be like Passover. Rejoicing in what God has done for us in the past and looking forward to his return for us in the future. It's a positive exercise. It's a positive memorial. It's an expression of worship and appreciation, thanksgiving and praise. It's not sorrowful, it's not morbid. And it doesn't reckon, reconcile us to God. It doesn't deal with our sins. You say, well, why is it, here's the third question, why is it that most people say or think differently when they when they talk about or celebrate communion? Why isn't there this focus on the simple memorial aspect that results in us, instead of focusing on ourselves and our sin, instead of focusing on the horrors of the cross that Jesus went through for us, focusing in on the greatness of God and the way he laid his life down for us and gave up his body and shed his blood so we could be reconciled to him. And he's coming back to set up his kingdom and fulfill all the rest of his promises. And we're forever going to be with him because of what he did for us. How's come that's not the focus when most people celebrate communion? because of the confusion introduced by Roman Catholicism and the history of the church. When you um, do a little bit of a study of church history, you'll find that Roman Catholic teaching with regard to communion is to identify it not as a memorial, but not as an ordinance, but as a sacrament. You say, well, what does that mean? What's the difference between an ordinance or a memorial or a sacrament? Well, sacrament means it's a sacrifice. It actually makes you right with God. It, it actually pays for your sins. You take communion. Communion. You go, you confess your sins, you take communion. This is why that's overly introspective. This is why it's so, so focused on thinking about all the sins I've committed and, and trying to confess them all and then partaking because the, when when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, there is a transubstantiation that takes place. That's the technical term. It will be on the quiz, Chuck. Uh, for the rest of you, you don't have to worry about it. But uh, transubstantiation is just a fancy theological term that refers to, supposedly what happens in the celebration of communion is that you take the the bread or the wafer or whatever, and it magically, mystically, amazingly, uh, and yet undetectably, it still tastes like a wafer, but it has turned into the actual body of Christ. And the cup, the wine, actually turns into the blood of Christ. And when you take those two elements, what happens? A sacrifice, a re-sacrificing of Christ happens. A portion of Him is once again uh, sacrificed or offered up to God to cover your sins up to this point. This is why there's such an emphasis on the celebration of last rites. This is why there's uh, communion that's given to people that are about to die or that are in the hospital or whatever else. Communion was never meant to be an individual exercise. You don't have to take make sure you get communion before you go to heaven. Communion does not cover your sins. Christ once and for all offered Himself up as a sacrifice for sins. The whole of this Roman Catholic uh, doctrinal teaching is making a mockery of what Jesus once and for all did at the cross. They are specifically doing what Hebrews tells us not to do. They're trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God saying what he did wasn't enough, we've got to redo it. In fact, the whole Roman Catholic priesthood is in essence... Uh, uh, a modified recreation of the Levitical priesthood and the ironic priesthood with the Pope. Well, I don't want this to be a, uh, a, a, an instruction time on Catholicism. I think the only thing you need to know is that what Christ did at the cross pays for your sins. But in, uh, you want to know why there's so much confusion about communion? You want to know why I'm a little passionate about this? Because I grew up Lutheran. And Luther, you you, you know what the Reformation is, right? You know why it's called the Reformation? It's called the Reformation because the beginning of it was not trying to break away from Catholicism. It was not trying to break away from the formal church. Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the church to try to institute instigate a series of reforms to the church that's why it's called the reformation we are see see luther was a catholic monk and he's sitting there teaching in a seminary the book of romans and as he's studying through the book of romans all of a sudden he gets saved and he goes wait a minute." Paul doesn't say to go through all of these hoops and steps and everything. In fact, Paul says no amount of hoops or steps can get you right with God. It's all about what Jesus did for for us. You're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. All of a sudden, the light goes on for Luther, and he's like, Oh, my goodness, we're doing so much stuff wrong. And then he starts starts to teach the truth. And all of a sudden, he's not exactly welcomed by the Pope anymore. Why? Well, because he's not really Christ's vicar on, on earth. He's actually the Antichrist. Well, that's Luther's terminology, but he, he recognizes how far astray Catholicism has gone. The church has gone. And so he's trying to reform the church. He's trying to take the doctrine of the church as it exists in the Middle Ages and, and move it biblical. Well, guess what? The forces of darkness are not so ready to give up their lies and all they've got invested in leading most of the world astray. And so you wind up being uh, branded Protestants, protesting uh, the Catholicism. And you break away from the church. Same thing happens with Calvin. Persecution starts, etc., and because lives are on the line, uh, because the primary issues of Scripture alone, through faith alone, based uh, uh, on Christ alone, uh, et cetera, th- those solas become the primary focus. You want to know why infant baptism continues to exist in many even evangelical churches? Because that's tied to the errors going all the way back to the, to the early 2nd century errant practices in the church. It, it, they tried to reform Catholic doctrine by going biblical. But when, when your life is on the line and the primary doctrines you're fighting for all the time are, are Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, etc. A lot of those other things fall by the wayside. And you deal with baptism, you deal with the last times, you deal with communion. Luther's answer to uh, that sacramental teaching of the Catholic Church, Luther came up with what he called consubstantiation. I remember learning this in can- uh, in Catechism uh, to this day, I have no idea what they were talking about, and when I went through seminary and had it fully explained to me and read luther 's own words myself, I still don 't understand what he 's trying to say because his description is that okay the the body and blood the When Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, well, the Catholic teaching that that's a sacrament and that it actually does become the body and blood, it still tastes like bread, it still tastes like wine, so it can't actually become that, and I know it's not a sacrifice because that would undo everything Roman says, so transubstantiation doesn't work. But it, he does say, this is my body and this is my blood, so it must be some way. And so there must be a mystical sense in which it becomes the body and blood of Christ. And while I'm going to call that consubstantiation. And the best way that Luther says that I can explain this is that Jesus is in, with, and under the bread. What? What does it mean to be in with and under the bread and in with and under the wine? I still to this day cannot figure out what he was saying. And that's because he was trying really diligently to be biblical. But he had so much Catholic teaching in there, and he really was trying to say, This is my body, so in what way is it his body? Then you have Calvin going, You know, Marty, it just doesn't make sense. I just can't go there with you, Marty. So so John goes, i tell you what, we're going to call it a spiritual uh, transformation. So, and this is where Presbyterians go because that's derived from John Calvin, right? So John Calvin says, no, the... The bread becomes the body just in a spiritual sense and the blood becomes the blood just or the wine becomes the blood just in a spiritual sense. And when you celebrate communion, there's kind of a spiritual experience that you have of Christ being present. Okay, John, that sounds great, except I have the Holy Spirit in me all day, every day. He's always with me. I don't need to take communion to go there. And the only reason any of you guys are trying to go there is because you have all this Catholic underpinning and you you made a reformation, you moved most of the way away from errant Roman Catholic teaching, but you didn't come all the way to the Bible. You know what Jesus means when he says, this is my body, this is my blood? He means this, this is a symbol that represents my body. And this is a symbol that represents my blood. And I want you, when you celebrate, when you use these items taken right from the Passover celebration, which was a memorial of how God was good to his promise to the people in the Old Testament and delivered them from bondage in Egypt and brought them to the promised land, I've also been good to my promises to you to bring you once for all salvation, reconciliation forever with God. And and just like I was good to my promise up to the cross, so too I will be good to my promise to come back and establish my kingdom and you will have a part in it. And that is the memorial. That's what communion is all about. That's it. That's it. I got a whole bunch of stuff here answering to um, uh, Catholicism. But for the sake of today, what I just want to say is this. How should we practice communion today? You know what the answer is? As a memorial celebration. You know, we give instructions uh, that are derived largely from 1 Corinthians 11 that are preparatory to celebrating communion with us. Um, We we talk about uh, making sure uh, that you are, in fact, a Christian? That you have been baptized as an individual? That you have come to that place where you recognize Jesus as your Lord and Savior and stepped forward and committed yourself to being one of His people? Why? Because according to the Great Commission, that's the first act of obedience for any Christian. So if you say you're a Christian, but you've never gotten baptized, then you haven't done the first act of obedience that He requires. And if you're not going to do the first act of obedience, then what makes you think you actually have done any act of committing yourself to Christ? Secondly, uh, we talk to you about if you're under discipline in this or any other household of faith. Well, why would we talk about that? Because, listen, if... If you're under discipline, that means that you are willfully disobedient to God and you are until you repent of that sin and reconciliation is facilitated, you, there is a, a separation between you and God. Why would, we cel- why would you participate in celebrating what Lord, the Lord has done for us when you willfully are actively disobedient to him in some uh, capacity that's been serious and addressed? That's why we regularly, and we've gone through this. uh, I thought you had a question. (laughs) Um, But uh, we have uh, regularly, uh, or or, um, not regularly, uh, we have repeatedly as elders either worked through in-house or even gone with people to another church and helped them be reconciled through the process of church discipline. And then we welcomed them back in here and let them join in communion a whole bit. Why? Because reconciliation is part of being a Christian. I don't care how you've sinned. If you repent and you confess your sins, then what does God tell all of us to do? To forgive you and restore you, right? And it's at that point then that we would encourage you to participate in communion together with us. And in um, in 1 Corinthians 11, I don't want to go through all the details here, but in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Paul makes it clear that the celebration of communion is a worship corporate worship exercise. And so you do need to take it seriously. Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he doesn't judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Well, what's he talking about? Of uh, Many among you are weak and sick and some sleep. That means some of you, because of all the abuses that Paul has been dealing with in this chapter, many of you have been behaving in a very selfish and ungodly way uh, and not thinking about anybody but yourself and taking advantage of others in the church. And you want to know why you're sick? Because God is disciplining you. You want to know some of you are frail because God is disciplining you. You want to know why a couple of you have died and graduated straight to glory because God is disciplining you. Because the celebration of communion is a corporate exercise of worship. This is why Paul talks about uh, one body. That's why the, the illustration of the breaking of the bread and everybody gets a piece because the loaf is Christ. And each of us have a share in Him together. You know, you and I, you are no more important to Christ than I am, and I am no more important to Christ than you are. And we all have a share in Him, and it's a corporate exercise celebrating what He has done for us, remembering what He has done for us, and looking for, declaring our faith in Him, and looking forward to His return and setting up His kingdom. That's what communion is all about. So as we celebrate the Lord's table today, what I'd like to invite you to do is to just think about it, like the Passover. Think about how that was a memorial that was focused on expressing appreciation to God for what He had done for them as a nation and delivering them from bondage in Egypt and bringing them into the Promised Land. Good to His promises. And think about how Jesus took that very celebration. And on the night in which he's betrayed, he's got the cross sitting in front of him. He knows the betrayer is sitting at the table and he even identifies him. In a way that the disciples don't recognize until afterwards. But he even identifies, not just that he knows there is a betrayer, but he knows who it is. And yet, what is he thinking about? Offering himself up for us so that we can be reconciled to God forever. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And what Jesus did for us, he did once and for all and forever. And that same Jesus who became flesh for us, died for us, so that we could be reconciled to God and have a place in his kingdom. Sinners like you and me. If I got what I deserved, I would have long ago already been cast into the lake of fire now that's not my future do you know why it's not my future it has nothing to do with me it has everything to do with him and his grace when you celebrate communion that should be the mentality that you have as you approach it say well every time we sit down and get ready to go through communion I just think about all the sins I've done you know it would be a good idea to think about those every day and repent of them if communion is something that facilitates you doing that great you need to evaluate yourself in your christian life before you come in a corporate exercise of worship that jesus himself prescribed for us to follow in remembering him but you shouldn't need communion a memorial of what he did for us to move you to want to be reconciled to God. But it's biblical to check your heart before you do a corporate exercise of worship like that. I just remind you of Jesus' own words in um, the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he said, if you're at the altar there with your offering, and you're there and you remember that your brother has something against you, what did Jesus say to do? Well, you're already at the front of the line, and it takes a couple of hours to get there. So God understands. Go through with your sacrifice, but just make a commitment in your heart to go home. And then, uh, when you get home, take care. Of it. Is that what he said? No. He says you leave your offering right there at the altar. It means you're the next one up. It's time for you to go, and you realize, you know what? I'm not right with my wife. I'm not right with my son. I'm not right with my daughter. I'm not right with. Joe down the street or Donald over here or where I'm, I'm not right. I leave my gift there. First go and be reconciled and then come back and present your offering. You need to be a, a person that lives with a clean heart all day, every day. Because your worship isn't acceptable to God if you don't have a clean heart. But it shouldn't take communion for you to go through that exercise. But that is the the one introspective preparation. But then you celebrate communion and you don't think about yourself and your sin. You think about your Savior and his return. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the many ways you've blessed us. Thank you for sending your Son to die for us. And Lord Jesus, thank you for being willing to come. Take upon yourself all the limitations of humanity so that you could be that substitute for us. And take upon yourself willingly on the cross the fullness of the wrath of God due for our sins. God made Him to, who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. And that's what You did for us at the cross, Jesus. You bore the fullness of God's wrath once for all. And now all of our sins are forgiven because of what You did. There is no way in all of eternity for us to ever make up for uh, our sins in the past or ever repay you for that infinite once-for-all sacrifice you made for us. But we can celebrate what you have done for us. We can memorialize what you have done for us and really rejoice in your goodness shown to us In the work of Christ at the cross. And that's what I pray that you help us to do. Even now as we celebrate communion this morning. And I pray that it would be our joy. Of being those who are. Not slaves of God. But children of God. Because of what Christ did for us. I pray that that would be what fills us. And moves us. And leads us. To indeed not only enjoy a day of fellowship together. As saints uh, on this campus. Uh, the rest of today, but indeed fills us to live the rest of our lives as just an expression of thank you to you, O God, because you are worthy of our worship. And given all that you have done for us, more than any people in all of redemptive history, we ought to be living for you. Help us to do that, O God, because you are worthy of it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.